This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk computers, new technology, the internet, and all of the good stuff. Uh, to my right tonight is Cassandra Wright, who's pushing the buttons and sitting on the edge of her chair uh, expectantly. Uh, hello, Cassie. How are you? Great. So excited. You can see me trembling with anticipation. I can. Uh, have you had a good week in technology? How's it, how's it been for you? Has it been helping you or, or holding you back, do you think? Look... I'm a millennial. How would I know? <laughs> How do I know any differently? What about the WordPress kind of um, bugs? That was a that was a disappointment. Oh, oh look, I've had some fun times with with WordPress at work this week and some plugin issues. But you know, uh, I think in my heart, I know we'll get through it eventually. I heard it uh, described as the Holden Commodore of uh, CMSs the other day. <laughs> uh, so I promptly changed my password. I think ABC one two three probably wasn't very secure. Uh, I'll be with you also for the next hour. Uh, my name's Warren Davies. Um, Emily Bell uh, is the hum- Humanities Visiting Professor in Media for 2015-16 at the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities uh, at Cambridge University. Uh, she must have a very big business card. Um, she recently delivered an address on the state of media, news and journalism that uh, caught the eye of many uh, commentators around the world. Uh, an excerpt from her talk... Uh, social media hasn't just swallowed journalism, it has swallowed everything. Uh, it has swallowed political campaigns, banking systems, personal histories, uh, the leisure industry, retail, even government and security. Uh, the phone in our pocket is our portal to the world. Uh, tonight we're going to take a look at that and what that all means uh, and how the phone ate your media. Uh, joining us will be Nick Hodges from News Corp and Owen Kelly from Schwartz Media. Uh, also later in the show, uh, I was lucky enough to get along to Melbourne Knowledge Week last week, which was heaps of awesome fun, uh, really geeky stuff. Um, I got along to speak with um, the people at Monash Sensor Lab, and uh, I had a great panel uh, tested on humans, um, which ran on Wednesday evening. Uh, so I'll have a bit of a look at that. There was some interesting stuff that came out of that, um, people. Um, so I'd certainly like to see what you thought uh, about some of the issues that came up. Um, before we have a look at that, though, uh, there's a few things happening uh, in news that uh, we did want to bring up uh, that's kind of relevant to our, our theme tonight of, uh, of news and media and, and technology. Um, one of the things that did catch my eye is uh, website blocking to reduce piracy. Uh, there's been some new research uh, that we, we being Australia, is having an impact on uh, reducing piracy, which uh, theoretically is a, is a good thing, um, and mostly I'm prepared to support that idea. Um, new research has revealed that court orders requiring the UK's largest ISPs to block 53 piracy sites uh, and several around the world um, have... Uh, these blocks that have been put in place from November 2014 have reduced internet traffic to sites by 16%. Uh, figure increased to 22% when applied to habitual uh, online pirates. Um, interestingly, they've said that there's also been a, a causal link um, between the blocking order and a 10% increase in visits to uh, legal ad-supported sites, which is probably a, a bit of a stretch. Um, but my thinking is, as you were pretty much saying on the couch out there before, Cassie, that um, it's just easier to go to places. Like, if you've got your Netflix there, then, you know, why would you bother torrenting stuff or, or what have you? Yeah, so I mean, I found, not that I've ever indulged in anything illegal in no. my life, ever, but I've found having Netflix or um, other sites, especially linked to smart TVs or on apps, it can be a lot easier than perhaps going to the trouble of, of torrenting. Mm. But 
I mean, this research, Warren, it kind of flies in the face of all the other studies that we've been hearing that mm. the blocking sites hasn't actually reduced piracy in Australia. It's just driving it further underground. Or, yeah. And I think when you're in Australia, you're also looking at it's not just piracy, it's geo-blocking and, you know, oh, using the American version of Netflix, for sure. example. Yeah, so it, our, our behaviours are just changing rather than um, it's been a success. We, we just evolve and, and change with it. Is that, is that your point of view? I, th- I, I don't know. I think so. I just think that you can't necessarily use the UK's data to re- be representative of Australia because no. there are different guidelines on the way that we can actually yeah. use content and we do have some very unique down-under-isms um, in the way that we pirate, I think. Uh, one of the things that was also a concern uh, was some of the news coming out around uh, algorithm and some, uh, I think, news from former Facebook workers about um, suppressing um, conservative news, um, potentially in the States here. What, what's going on with this one? Yeah, case? so this kind of blew up yesterday. I don't know. It was all over my feeds, but I guess that's, again, just the algorithms at work, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> who knows? But um, some Facebook workers have come out saying that what we actually believe to be the trending topics or the topics that we see that people are talking about um, on the side of our feeds, at the top of our feeds, it's not all purely algorithm-based. It actually needed some human helping hands to get it along. And uh, a story has actually come out saying that what Facebook workers were doing were repressing sort of conservative-type stories and boosting up more liberal, small-l liberal-type hmm ideals such as the hashtag Black Lives Matter mm. movement. Um, so making certain things seem more popular than they actually were and mm-hmm. removing other things. And I guess, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later on in the show as well, but it actually, what scares people is that when we look at Facebook and say, when it says these are the top trending topics or this is actually what's popular right now, we believe that. And so for Facebook to actually come in and have an editorial point of view is something that we weren't actually expecting. No, that's true. We, we expect them to be unbiased, um, just, uh, a, a simple distributor of, uh, of, of content that's out there that we need to see. Um, it's interesting, there was um, uh, a couple of months ago uh, a similar thing for Twitter where um, several high-profile uh, right-wing bloggers complained they were suffering from something they called uh, shadow banning. Uh, they thought their tweets were not getting the response uh, rate or attention uh, they would normally because Twitter had secretly muted them uh, to the rest of the network, um, which is plausible um, and and certainly alarming, um, regardless of, of what their points of view are. Um, it should be a, a, an even playing field for, for everybody based on how good your content is or how salient your point of view is or, um, yeah, everyone should be able to access the service in the same way. I still think, though, when you're... I mean, it, it does have broader implications and that's what's scary, but a lot of the actual facts that are coming out are dealing particularly with Republican slash Democrat US politics. And when you look at certain coverage that media outlets have given in reverse, for example, um, it can be argued that Facebook was just providing something that was the opposite way in traditional media, but, you know, they still maybe shouldn't have been playing editorial. That's true. It might now be a good time to uh, introduce uh, our guests on the show tonight, and uh, they probably will be sticking around uh, for a little while. So um, I don't know if they want to fire a few shots over the top at uh, any of these topics. You guys are quite welcome to. Um, Owen Kelly is Director of Technology at Schwartz Media in Melbourne. Uh, they are publisher of The Monthly and The Saturday Paper, and maybe um, some other things, I'm not really sure. Yeah, our, um, our sister company, Black Ink, does Redback Quarterly and The Quarterly Essay, ah. um, so as 
a number of books every year. Great. Cool. Yeah. And uh, Nick Hodges is Head of Commercial Innovation at News Corp. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming in tonight. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, so, guys, we um, we connected about, uh, I guess, a story um, from um, uh, Medium uh, a little while ago, um, which was kind of under the sort of um, um, extreme idea of Facebook eating journalism and, and sort of um, eating the media uh, from uh, Emily Bell. Um, there were, uh, I guess, a few uh, themes that came through in that that uh, might be a, a starting point um, for our conversation. Uh, essentially, she was saying that uh, in the past few years, the, the pace of change in media and, and the way technology is impacting on it uh, is accelerating out of proportion to our, our ability to uh, understand it, to make reasonable judgments about is it a good thing or a bad thing. Um, uh, people who move fast can obviously take advantage of this, but some of us who, who move slowly are, are maybe being caught unawares. Uh, I guess she was also suggesting that um, some of the, the great media empires, uh, especially in the States, um, that you've tended to look at, uh, Washington Post, New York Times and so forth, were um, uh, uh, hugely uh, adversely affected by some of these changes. Um, I do remember one of the things that really um, stood out to me uh, in my time on this show was when um, uh, Instagram was acquired for more than the value of the New York Times at the time um, after being a company for maybe 18 months or something like that. That, that was pretty fun. Um, that was, that was a, a billion dollars and everyone at the time thought this is an insane amount of money to pay for an app. Yeah. And in that time it's gone from I think it was 100 million users to now there's something in the round with like four or 500 million. Yeah. And then a little while after that they bought WhatsApp for like 24 billion which made Instagram look like a, you know, just a little hobby project to buy on the side for Facebook. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, when you think about the, 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 the value of something like uh, Instagram compared to the value of a good news organisation that, you know, can reach kind of anywhere around the world and can sort of put context on what we see in the world, why is, why is it hard for a, a, a media organisation to add that many users these days? I mean, um, do either of you guys have a point of view on why you can't sort of, you know... I, th- I think at the very least, Inst- Instagram and the New York Times are two completely different things. Yeah. Like, they, they both they both have content that people might want to see, but that type of content and why you go there are completely different. So it's very easy for Instagram to get a billion users, well, nearly a billion users, half mm. a billion users, because they're a distribution platform. The same way that Facebook, you know, they say they're a distribution platform. Mm. And so it's the ideal scenario is that it's just unbiased and it's a place to find stuff that people have shared, as opposed to the New York Times, for example, or pretty much any other you know news company where the goal is to actually produce the news. Mm. So that it's, it's much harder to for one company to produce a lot of news for a lot of people than it is for a lot of people to produce content for a lot of people. So is that, is that one to many versus many to many sort of thing? Yeah. I think, uh, I think giving people the opportunity to uh, project the way they would like others to see their lives is a much more valuable thing in the eyes of shareholders than the ability to publish content that people might want to consume and may be important as well yeah no that, that that's interesting um one of the other things that um it was um uh, pointed out in her talk at cambridge was that um consumer habits and the technology that we use is um obviously having a significant effect on on how we consume stuff what have been the most significant things that you guys have seen in, in your time uh, sort of around news um is it um I guess the, the the mobile changes. To it it doesn't have to be mobile. I think yeah. at least the 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 thing which has driven all the change would have to be mobile. Mm. Like if you think if you think it's been I think less than nine years since the iPhone came out. Mm. So we're still in kind of the first decade of this massive technology, which basically smartphones. Yeah. Because you know a couple of years later Android came out, and that's that's really taken over as as a you know as a device. So everybody has a smartphone now, mm. and so many people are growing up without a computer. 
to have a have a desktop computer is kind of almost archaic now yeah. unless you unless you want to play games and so laptops are kind of becoming the same unless you have a need for it for say school or work and so everyone now is really just using the 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 phone that they have which the computer that they have which i was just thinking is kind of like that that saying where the the best camera you have is the one in your pocket where we're kind of in the realm where the best computer you have is the one that you always have with you and now they're so good and Mm. you know in a lot of cases they're sometimes more functional than your computer because they have um everyone has a good quality microphone camera gps etc so everyone has them and then everyone's using them and and so from there um how do you get to those people yeah and if people if if everybody is using this one thing or this new thing to to do everything they want to do you have to go there so you can't just have the old school news websites that you did that look terrible on a small phone you can't you know you can't you can't just keep doing the same thing and thinking that everyone's going to going to be okay with it especially if somebody else wants to come along and do something for that new platform mm. yeah it's hard nick do you think um is it unusual in in the history of media that um people have actually decided what how they want to receive their news as opposed to um uh, news organizations telling them how they're going to receive it yeah well i mean owning the means of production has always been the the sort of the method of control of media um and that worked quite well for a, a good century. Um, but, I mean, I think, I guess going back to Emily Bell's piece, the the world of media loves a bit of navel-gazing and they love a bit of catastrophizing about what's happening to the world of media. And I think what's probably more interesting is that the last 100 years was an anomaly where the ability for media companies to reach a phenomenal number of people just happened to align with brands and corporations and governments need to communicate messages to a huge number of people uh, and so a lot of the hand-wringing is is sort of about oh my gosh we're we're, we're losing this revenue and and we're losing this ability when when in actual fact it was more an anomaly that that ever happened in the first place mm. um, and now this sort of unbundling of media is is in a way completely unsurprising um you know despite the fact that you 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 know you do see the valuations of media companies dropping massively it's probably not that surprising when you look at you know like Owen says the sort of what's happened with smartphones and and how that's changed essentially the sort of atomic unit of content that that we that we search and that we share and that we read in talking about smartphones and this information that we carry around in our pocket i'd also say that the way that we physically consume news has changed because perhaps in the past you'd sit down with a huge broadsheet that maybe you could get on a train but you know might be a bit irritating but there was time to actually sit and read or when you were watching television there was time that you allocated to actually be actively involved in consuming that form of news or media and now when we've got stuff in our pocket we get headlines we get clickbait and we get quick things or instagram where you see a picture or you know you're dedicating a maximum of 30 seconds to something thing but to actually have news or especially long-form journalism that takes a lot more time or you know you're going to have to scroll through for a while you don't have time you put it in the back you put it to read later you perhaps never get to it I don't know I was just thinking with the medium article that we had one of the great things about it is at the top it actually tells you how long it's going to take you to read it so you know whether or not you can engage in it Uh, do you guys have anything to say about you know the way that individuals actually 
consume the news in their personal habits well I, I, when i come across medium articles i have to like put them in insta paper because i'm not going to read them till saturday because it says like this is four minutes long i'm like that's way too long <laughs> um but you, you're absolutely right that the way that we change things has changed and the way that i guess i like to think about it is that things like facebook fill the gaps media and and the consumption of especially news media traditionally has not been something that fills the gaps uh when we've been you know waiting for a bus or you know in a lift and i love the fact that people can't just stand in a lift for 40 seconds um you know we we traditionally haven't whipped out a newspaper and started reading it or switched on a television or a radio um yet now media fills the gaps and so again the unsurprising part about that is that media has evolved to fill the gaps and it's actually strange now when we come across a long form article and we're like oh geez that's like more than three scrolls i think that's a good point in that we never used to 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 just have news and and media content when we were you know wandering around doing nothing but an interesting thing i've noticed is that you know you have news and then you have harder news then you have interesting news then you have news about cats and so on and when people go and 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 you know and and consume that sort of news it kind of depends on the situation but one thing that we've we've definitely seen is that people are more than happy to read a 10,000 word article on their phone it's mm. not it's not necessarily about what device you have it's really entirely the context of how much time you have available if if you can't spare 4 minutes to read something then yeah you save it and you read it on the weekend mm. i did see some stats on um uh, pocket where they looked at um the most popular stories and one of the most popular stories was a 2 hour read on how to um get off heroin which was amazing and uh, i think the average of the top rating articles or the most popular articles was about 14 minutes but i mean i guess when you use something like that you're signing up to that kind of thing you do have time or you commute a long time or, or something like that. Um, we might come back to one of the other things in the um, uh, piece a, a little bit later around trust and, and um, the people who are um, serving up our news for us now. What, what do we know about them and, and what their agenda is? I did want to ask you guys, um, what, what is news production like these days, knowing that kind of everything's... Um, uh, how we access news has, has changed a lot, um, you know, is what people are telling us. Can, can you think of any recent examples of stories or things that um, your media organisations covered and how it was produced? Because most of us don't really know much about that. It just kind of pops up on our screens. Maybe, do you want to go first time? Yeah, so, so, I mean, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the news that we produce at, at Schwartz Media is, is not... Uh, we don't do breaking news, so... You won't find headlines or, or anything like that from us, and so we we tend to take a little little bit more time to actually produce something. And so the Saturday paper only comes out on on a Saturday, and then the monthly comes out once a month, then the quarterly essay comes out once a quarter. Um, I get it now. Yeah, <laughs> and so what what often happens is that we have you know a three thousand word article that someone's just spent the week writing, or, or with, with the monthly, you know, you might have a five to ten thousand word article that's taken three or four months to write, and. Most of them, at the end of the day, funnily enough, it's kind of just old school journalism where it's it's people going and finding a story and spending time writing it. Where where I think a lot has changed is is kind of with the stuff that we don't actually do, which is breaking news and how you how you actually cover that. But mm. yeah, from our perspective, it's it's very similar to, to how people used to do it. Other than you know the technology that you use to do it may have changed the way you communicate with people probably has changed, but mm. yeah. Do you, um, do you ask anything of the, the owner of the story or the, the kind of steward of the story to, um, follow the story as it, so as it goes through publication and as people sort of comment, um, do, are they responsible for the story in any way or once it's out there, it's just out there and it's a free flow? Um, I mean, I can't speak too much to that because I don't, I don't sit in the editorial team yep. specifically myself, but, um, one thing, one thing we did do, um, on, on the paper is we, we turned off comments because we, we found that the, the 
the quantity of comments we got wasn't um well the quality of comments i should say wasn't you know wasn't superb and, and it ended up being that um a good amount of conversation was happening elsewhere on, mm. on Twitter and so on, mm-hmm. and so we, we turned them off. We haven't we haven't really noticed any um, any big deal with that. We still have one on on the monthly, and we have a great conversation on there on pieces. But we found on the on the paper that yeah, people people go on to talk about it on Twitter, and the, off, quite often the people who wrote the story, mm. um, I think, find it far easier to engage with people on Twitter because they're already on there. Yeah, interesting. Um, what, what's news like at, at news these days? Um, Look, pr- probably the most interesting area to talk about about how news moves through an organisation is is an acquisition we did uh, two years ago of an Irish company called Storyful, and Storyful is a a, a platform a technology that has access to the firehose. So you know this huge amount of content that's uh, going through Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, and Storyful is is essentially uses algorithms and such and people like Facebook um, to, to to identify things that are appearing. So so really to identify breaking news, and it it, it employs a huge number of journalists that actually then go and verify both through I guess traditional journalistic ways of actually contacting people um, and also super ninja awesome cool ways like if um, so so for instance for for war reporting it's it's Storyful's very important tool. And if somebody says, here's a mobile phone video that was just shot from, you know, this part of Afghanistan or something, well, then they can actually start to use digital photos to work out if that building is in Afghanistan or if it's Mm. somewhere in Turkey or something like that. Yeah, right. Uh, It looks at, you know, what the weather is and things like that. So Storyful's a a really amazing platform and really eye-opening as to how that can impact journalism and how it can impact, um, I, I, I guess, the way we go about telling stories and in a world where you have to get things out you know within 30 seconds it's it really impacts how journalists can can really actually go about their jobs uh and you know make sure that that they're actually doing their job um and i think you know it's an interesting seeing storyful in action and and it's a platform that's used not just by news corp at all but it's, it's used by most major news outlets in the world um you know, when people start talking about, oh, well, you know, do we need large institutions of media? Um, you see tools like Storyful and you're like, well, we probably do because there's not a lot of bloggers that are going to be able to actually verify, you know, whether this video of, of a bomb going off or whether this video of a dog on a surfboard is actually authentic. And both are important. That's a, an interesting point there. Uh, you're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R uh, this week with Cassie Warren and our guests Owen and Nick uh, to talk about media and technology. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R uh, this week with Cassie Warren and our guests for the show, uh, Owen and Nick, uh, representing uh, a couple of media organisations for a point of view on technology and media. Uh, so, guys, one of the, the things that um, I did want to ask you about uh, while you're here, and um, Cassie might have a, a point of view on this as well, um, you did point out you work at two media organisations uh, while we're um, uh, playing a track there. Uh, do you think we're fast to respond or do you think we respond uh, to meet the needs of, of uh, news audiences uh, in Australia? Um, Obviously, there's a, a lot of things going on. I'm a big fan of some of the, the pocket news services. Uh, I do like, I've said it before on the show, I do like Quartz, and I think it's fun just to kind of see news presented in that way. Should we be doing stuff like that in Australia, or is the um, uh, the pool of readers not really big enough? Do we have conservative um, news consumers um, here in Australia? Um, do you have a point of view on, on that, Nick? Look, I, I, there is a challenge in innovating in, I guess, news distribution right now, which is that platforms dominate distribution. 
Um, so it's not always in the control of the media company as to how, how, how it's being consumed. Hmm. Um, having said that, we can innovate on platforms. So probably the most recent buzzword is around bots. Uh, and, you know, I know that we've definitely been doing a lot around that uh, at News. Uh, Wall Street Journal was one of the launch bots for Facebook Messenger. Uh, I saw some really awesome uh, sort of prototypes that were built last week in a hackathon that we had, uh, a global hackathon, and I actually found out today that we're doing a bot jam. Uh, oh, which, sounds which, messy. Which which does sound sticky. Um, so we're having a hackathon purely focused on bots globally hmm. um, in a couple of weeks. So there are interesting things happening. There's in terms of the the building of platforms, perhaps there's not. There's probably really only one sort of new startup that stands out in Australia for, for, for me, which is a platform called Inkle, hmm. um, which is a very good aggregation platform, but you know, probably not sort of um, not as big and as well known as sort of the likes of Blendle. Um, but mm. yeah, look, I, I think consumers are more than willing. Where Australia is a is a very good country at adopting technology. We're one of the uh, fastest smartphone adopters mm. in the world. Um, we're some of the best pirates in the world. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're we're quite cool with new technology. Um, but you know, you are right. I don't think we've seen the innovation from media companies that perhaps we could. When you're mentioning bots, um, I'm just intrigued as how that actually even works in a news environment. Is it that you're just chatting on Facebook Messenger and you're telling me stories about this issue and and the bot comes back? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, bots aren't necessarily a new thing. Facebook would sort of like us to think they are, but they've been around for a long time, especially in Asia. So, you know, Wall Street Journal in Asia is on, it's online, it's on WeChat, it's on WhatsApp, it's on Kik. Bot, bot technology has been around since the 60s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, I guess where it's get, where, where it's coming from now, I mean, even last year at the Herald Sun, um, we ran a, a program through WhatsApp where you could get AFL news delivered to you through WhatsApp. But it's now becoming a little bit more personalised. So uh, on the Wall Street Journal uh, bot, for instance, you can tell it specific companies that you want to hear about um, from a business point of view, uh, and it will give you alerts about those. So it starts to just become a little bit more personalised and, and a little bit more one-to-one, which is, is why, I guess, media companies... It's probably the most interesting fertile ground right now because it's about really personalising content. Owen, do you, do you feel like um, many of the titles um, uh, in your organisation are, are kind of a refuge from the confusion around how to find content and, ha- and how to do that? Do you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a little bit. Like, we we definitely take the approach of you you know you come to us and we'll tell you everything that we think you're probably going to need to know, or we'll, or, uh, we'll give you something that'll be really interesting to read. But we, yeah, we we don't have that that um, that sort of um, thing. You know, we we don't have really new ways of of consuming content compared to what's happening in a lot of other places. And I I, I think it, you know, as as a, as a country, we're really slow to develop new things, and that might partly just be because we don't have a lot of news organisations over here. When you look at say Europe or the States, there's so many different media companies hmm. all all vying for a little bit of attention from people. So. There's, there's often more scope to, to, you know, innovate and, and do new things, and so, um, yeah, like I don't think we're seeing a lot of that over here just yet. Um, partly, partly because no one's got around to it. I think like there's, there's definitely a lot of new stuff um, with Australian content from overseas, you know, overseas companies coming in here. Mm. Um, but I don't, I haven't really seen anything, anything homegrown that's, you know, that's really caught my eye as, as something that's new and. 
potentially a really good way to consume news compared to what we already have, which is really just either a way to find news, being, you know, say Facebook, Twitter, social media, or any other app which, consult, you know, aggregates a bunch of news. And, um, and then the way to read it, which still is kind of just um, either text or video or, or a podcast or so on. Hmm. So we, I don't think we've really seen anything anything that changes the landscape just yet. I, I feel like it's coming because, you know, as, as we are saying, in the last five years, everything seems to be speeding up in the media world. We seem to, for most of the, you know, the decade of the 2000s, we, we just kind of sat around and didn't do very much and kind of realised, oh, there's an internet thing and we should probably put some, some words on there. There's a lot of seasons are lost. Like, yeah. You know, let's put it in context. We have stuff yeah. to do. Um Nick, as a person with innovation in their title, uh, I'm going to ask you, does does it have to be new? Is the answer to the um, another amazing century of news um, the new thing? Or is it just about, um, I guess, the value that we can offer in informing people? Yeah, look, I think uh, as someone who has innovation in their title and has in several jobs had, had innovation in their title... Um, Innovation is, is often mistaken for novelty. Uh, so I think that what, and this is not just media companies, this is any company right now uh, looks for is, is novelty, is new ways of doing things that might capture some attention for a small amount of time. Um, but usually those sort of methods and those sorts of techniques aren't necessarily going to, to deliver any sort of a, a lot of long-term value. Um, so, look, a lot of the innovation that, that happens in media perhaps isn't as obvious to the end user um, when you really want to talk about you know, deep innovation that takes a lot of time and, a, and a, often a lot of money. Um, I think you know, BuzzFeed's probably one of the most interesting companies in that sense where... To the end user, BuzzFeed perhaps does look like an innovative news company because of, essentially, because of the novelty, because of how they've approached it. Yet, if you only look at the end result of BuzzFeed, you really don't understand 95% about what is innovative about BuzzFeed and the way that they use data and the way that they've changed the process of how they create news uh, and the way that they have broken down a lot of traditional barriers within media, um, you know, is actually the true innovation that they've done. And, and then what happens is the output just happens to also look very different um, to, to, to what we're used to. There's uh, an interesting uh, post on Medium, and we'll try and get some of these links up uh, uh, after the show, uh, by Joshua Topolsky, um, and uh, I think, uh, Owen, you know a little bit about this guy, but he's written a great yeah. piece. Uh, your media business will not be saved. Um, talking about, uh, I guess, um, you know, iterations on iterations, so, you know, doing something neat with a new video or uh, format or, you know, um, the giving Periscope to some of your journalists or something like that. But um, and, and with a bit of a language warning here, which I, I do always um, not offer. Um, his commentary on this is um, speaking about uh, um, traditional media. Uh, your problem is that you make shit, a lot of shit, cheap shit, and no one cares about you or your cheap shit. And an increasingly aware, connected, and mutable audience is onto your cheap shit. They don't want your cheap shit. They want the good shit, and they will go find it somewhere. Hell, they'll even pay for it. Uh, so I, th I think that speaks to the fact that we don't want to necessarily change how we make stuff. We like to send someone to cover a story. We like all of the angles. Uh, we like a juicy photo or a juicy video or something like that. But maybe that's not what uh, Cassie wants anymore. She just wants to be able to um, uh, share a headline and uh, put some context around it in a tweet or, or something like that. So is it up to 
the consumer to, to kind of change media to say this is how we talk about stuff now and, and you guys just don't get it? Or? The, I mean, the, the first thing about Josh Topolsky's article is I would like to stand up for shit. Hmm. Um, and like I, I mentioned before that a lot of media consumption now is filling the gaps and so it is media that did not exist beforehand mm. and the stuff that he's criticising is actually often it's the stuff that fills the gaps mm. and to say that no one's interested and to say that no one wants it is fundamentally wrong mm. because he clearly hasn't looked at any analytics for any media organisation because mm. clearly people do want it because they consume it mm. and they share it which is not to say that Well we're the, just talking about BuzzFeed right? We're exactly well but, but you know BuzzFeed does BuzzFeed now does real important journalism Mm. as well as the shit mm. um and so the two can exist at the same time mm. um it's it, it, it's not that we have to have one or the other yeah do you how do you fill the gaps when you when you're sort of working on the i, I mean i i tend to have long kind of longish articles that i read and then i have like one of my one of my favorite aggregators is a place called hacker news which is kind of all you know um programming sort of news and yeah like i i, I definitely fill the gaps with things that are not big juicy stories and the thing, the thing that I always, I always kind of hate when when people start talking about the media is that they think it's a zero sum game between, essentially, yeah, the, the shit and good news. And I remember, I remember when BuzzFeed first launched, and it was just, you know lists and cat pictures and that sort of stuff. And I thought it was just a random little blog. And then they kind of grew grew up pretty big, and they were still doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden they started doing news. And like I think a lot of people in the media, I kind of thought it was a bit a bit rich of them to you know to try and jump into the media world and then they started getting really good at it and i kind of i kind of realized that their model is is very much like just a big cable news network where you have oh sorry it's like a big cable network where you have in some places really hard news or like you think you think of the free-to-air networks in australia you have a certain point where you have some pretty good news then you have other stuff around it and if that other stuff can pay for the good news then that's all the better at the end of the day good point I still think that we are getting a lot of stuff in, in the way that we consume media or the bits that we share. You do have people sharing headlines without even reading the article. You know, you do have that. But even the fact that even with a, a journal, like just a piece of, a casual piece of journalism, not long form, you can get break by break updates right in the same place. You can share that link and it'll be constantly updated and it'll have all that latest information. Like, that's so basic, but it's something novel that we wouldn't have had in the past, and it's something beautiful. Yeah, and I think that's that's a point where the media has innovated a fair bit. If you think if you think back just before the internet really sort of took over, the only place you could find live was either broadcast radio or TV, mm. and even then we didn't have a twenty four hour news network unless you had cable. And so now, if you want to follow politics, there's a bunch of news orgs in in Australia who will have a live updating feed of what's going on. And the neat thing about that is that. You can check in whenever you want. You can look at it on your phone. You can get up to date pretty quickly. And you can look at it in your own manner. You don't have to sit around for five minutes and wait for the announcer to come back to the main piece. You can just go through and find it. Even better than that, you can get that little snippet of news pushed to you without mm. interrupting anybody else but you. And, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's one of the few places where I think we've really innovated as a, as a, you know, as a collective industry. But... Having said that, I don't think we're going to see a lot of like really groundbreaking innovation in the sense that people think, oh, this is going to change everything. Mm. If you think back when, when the iPad came out, um, a lot of people in the media were, were thinking, oh, this is beautiful. We can just put an app on there, charge people for it, and we'll be saved. And that, that'll be it. And mm. it didn't really Ma- work magazines out Magazines like were saved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, like the thing at the end of the day is that if you produce good stories and people want to read them, 
there's a good chance that you can either get them to pay for it or you can explore a model in the way that BuzzFeed's doing it. I think that's actually a pretty valid option mm. um, where you have, uh, and if you forgive the language, but go back into what we had before, if you have the shit, you can quite often use that to sustain good news. Mm. That's true. Uh, just quickly, Nick, is there any kind of uh, fundamental um, fix that you would like to see um, in the news landscape in Australia, something that sort of rubs you the wrong way or you can't believe nobody's done yet? Um, look, I, I, I don't think there's any quick fixes and I don't know if it's even an Australian thing or, or, or a global thing. I don't think there's a quick fix. I think that there are a lot of changes that are happening and if we look at ad blocking and if we look at paywalls and if we look at mobile there's a lot of changes happening where media organizations are are starting to work out how to make the models work Mm. um i think that actually we're maybe not on the verge but but we're sort of five to ten years out from a, a, a real fundamental change in the model of media and how media does become a profitable sort of entity and institution again um and you know there's a there's a, a an analyst called benedict evans that has this great idea that the technology reaches its absolute pinnacle as soon as it becomes obsolete um so the the absolute most beautiful piston powered airplanes were, were designed just as jet engines came out mm. and the most you know the the, the the most awesome sort of graphic workstation supercomputers um, were, were, were being made just as you know power max launched and suddenly mm. you could just do everything with a laptop so the idea is that I think we're actually slowly getting to this point where this balance of of how to make money how to create good content how to deliver good content um, that's going that's really starting to ramp up and probably just as we get there there's going to be some fundamental thing built on the blockchain and bitcoin and all sorts of things that suddenly media completely changes all over again so i'm excited to get to that bit though that's an interesting idea you're listening to bite into it on triple r uh, tonight with cassie warren and our guests uh owen and nick uh who've been talking to us about media and technology uh in terms of uh, interesting stuff in melbourne in the past week um we are we'd like to think of ourselves as a smart city uh, a knowledgeable city and as such uh, we've created melbourne knowledge week for ourselves, um, which happened last week um, as part of that there was a uh, a session uh, hosted by monash sensor lab uh, who've been on the show before um called tested on humans so bought into it got to go along and um moderate uh, the panel there um they did some interesting projects during the day. Uh, one of the fun ones was the stress pendant, uh, where uh, Sensor Lab had actually developed a pendant that you could hang around your neck or on a lanyard from your belt. And it was just a, a cute little thing that you got to squeeze if you felt stressed. So if you're going about your day um, and, um, you know, you had to choose a hamburger or something like that, squeeze it. And they actually kept uh, uh, data uh, around Melbourne over um, where the most stressed people were and, and sort of what was causing them stress and, and so forth. Um, it was kind of funny because uh, on the map, obviously because they had a few pendants themselves, uh, Monash and Caulfield was looking pretty hot and, <laughs> and pretty stressful on the day. But um, one of the interesting things that came out of that, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention some of the other um, speakers in a moment, uh, was that um, John McCormack, who's the director at Sensor Lab, put forward the idea that um, wearables are kind of a, a little bit unfriendly and kind of um, very sleek and very cold and, um, you know, hard to modify and play with and so forth. So uh, they put forward this idea that you can just make your own. It's very easy to go out and get an Arduino and to um, uh, get a Bluetooth um, um, technology and you can just kind of wrap it up. They put it in a little ball and uh, and off they went. 
what do you guys feel about wearables? Have you have you picked one up yet? Do you like the idea of kind of um, transmitting data and, and sort of pumping it out? I mean, when I first saw this, I was kind of reminded of an elderly safety button, you know, that, yeah. that type of thing. Or oh, panic button. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe that it was, you know, totally first world problems to go around being like, I'm stressed when yeah. other people are in war zones or that yeah, type yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, but I still think it's almost a really beautiful personal thing because you can share an emotion through this that you wouldn't really want to put up as a Facebook status or as Mm. it would be very self-indulgent to sort of do that all the time but to actually have a squeeze and to have a friend nearby have something go off on their wearable being like oh one of your friends needs a hug that would be something I would do if I could transmit needing hugs over the internet of things I would that, that seems a smart idea. I don't know. Do you guys? <laughs> Sounds really sad. <laughs> no, no, that's totally reasonable. Um, and and I think that was the intention there to, to kind of show some of the um, the subtleties of human um, experience rather than just that I'm here or I've burnt this many calories. Do you guys like wearables? Do you think they're friendly and fun? And you know, what do you think about them? Uh, I, I think, like many people, I, um, I I had a wearable and I, I I wore it and it tracked my steps and my sleep and I really loved it and it was amazing and the insights were maybe not that interesting at all but it was really great for three months and then I couldn't be bothered anymore yeah uh, and and I think that's the thing it's maybe we'll get there maybe wearables will become really great and valuable or maybe in some very specific use cases they already are really valuable Mm. um but i think just you know booting around with a thing on your wrist i'm yet to sort of see anyone who just goes yeah this thing's totally changed my life Mm. i i I mean i'm probably one of those people who's in the realm of this is pretty good Mm. i i had a fitbit and i used it for about three weeks until it it died because i forgot to charge it up Mm -hmm. and so I, i kind of you know, went into the realm that Fitbit probably isn't isn't my sort of thing because mm-hmm. it, it charging it up on a random schedule of maybe every five days or something, mm-hmm. and it's kind of just really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And then I got an Apple Watch, mm-hmm. and I've worn it pretty much every single day, mm-hmm. um, partly because I get notifications on there. So from, mm-hmm. I mean, just purely from a wearable perspective, I found it to be a really really valuable addition to the way I, the way, you know the way I live in my life. Mm-hmm. But um, the fitness tracking from it has been really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I. I mainly from this from the aspect of it will tell you little bits about your goals and so on. So, so it'll say, "Hey, you haven't actually you know walked very much today." Yeah. Um, and I've found that just to be not it, like it hasn't really been something that's really motivated me to go out and do a lot of walking. But it's been a nice little addition to be like, "Oh yeah, I, I did a bit of walking then, etc." Mm. Um, and then the heart rate tracking is also a pretty interesting one. So when you think about a stress pain that you can that you can tap. Mm. Um, you can kind of get exactly the same data, if not even more terrifyingly accurate, from mm. a heart rate um, yeah. monitor. And it's not it's not as strong and detailed as, um, say, a Hold'em no. monitor, but it's pretty good at at getting you know a, a pretty interesting pattern of what's going on. Mm. And there's a there's a company, uh, well, an app. I think I think it's called Heartbeat or something like that, where they're they're trying to get a bunch of um, people with Apple Watches to to be sending up their heart rate data up there. Mm. Um, and they're working with um, it's a hospital in America. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly who. And they're basically trying to do some big data analysis to see if they can find um, patterns from a very very inaccurate heart rate sensor, being the one in, in the Apple Watch, sure. um, to predict potential heart problems. Because there are some heart problems that can exist that if you catch them really early, you know, yeah. it's it's really good at you can address at it. Finding. Yeah, yeah, that's a great great use idea. 
There was a, uh, an interesting thought that came up from, uh, I think put forward by uh, Rachel Kelmer, who's a, a data scientist, and um, yeah, she's famous for wearing the most wearables at any one time. I think she had up to 37 um, on her body at uh, any one time. Uh, she's very interested in it. But she talked about um, the companies behind a lot of the wearables um, looking to make uh, cookies. So in the future, all of this stuff's going to be really useful, and we get to bake cookies. Um, but we don't have any flour, and oh, we need a mill. Um, and on all of these things and um, she described it to the people um, as part of the, the conversation that we're, out, we're all out there making flour um, but we don't get to decide on what the cookies are at the end that we all get to eat and we don't get, we don't get to visit the mill as well. So um, the interesting thing that it occurred to me at the time was um, are we just pumping out data for people under the guise of you get to manage your weight or how many steps you've done each day and is that a false, false set of value anyway? Like to Nick's point, like what did he actually get out of it booting around um, aside from potentially very valuable data if there's uh, a billion other Nicks out there doing that? And, and looking terribly fashionable. Looking terribly yeah. fashionable. But I, I mean look, I, I, that I Argument's true all the way back to, to to Google. Really, you know, the reason Google is is a, whatever they are at the moment, mm. seven hundred billion dollar company, mm. is because you made all those searches, yeah. and because everybody else made everybody else made all those searches. And if we hadn't been inputting all that data, then um, the, the, then Google wouldn't be anywhere. And it's the same case here. If the value you're getting out is is worthwhile for. Um, for what you're sort of, um, or if the value that, that you're putting into that system, the data you're giving them is, is worth it for what you're getting out, then then go for it. But the argument is probably that I don't think people are as aware as they perhaps should be that that equation even exists. I mean, we've got all sorts of feminine wearables as well. There's this bra that only unclasps when it senses that you're in love, oh. um, which, you know, is a bit bit confusing or i mean this is not that family. can that happen on the tram or just like anywhere or no like you you still have to unclasp it oh, but right. it will lock uh, unless oh. so if someone you're you're hanging out with is not your true love oh, really? it won't come off so yeah mm. that's kind of odd um but, i mean there's all there's all sorts of other things that we're not really using yet this is not that family friendly but um i've backed a it hasn't arrived yet but i've backed a smart menstrual cup on mm-hmm. kickstarter so cool i mean that data is not really useful for anything but oh no <laughs> <laughs> it's very useful for people who want to sell you insurance yeah well there you go oh, yeah. oh. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Fascinating. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting session. I, th- I think generally people felt that uh, it was early days and maybe getting any benefit out of this um, in a useful way, being able to um, uh, access the data, being able to manipulate it, being able to say what you want to done with it, being able to design your own stuff. Um, but, yeah, interesting. And hopefully uh, SensorLab will be back uh, next year at uh, Melbourne Knowledge Week. Um, there are a, a couple of events that we wanted to let you uh, know about uh, just quickly uh, in, in the last couple of minutes. Uh, Coda Dojo uh, is on this Saturday at Inspire 9. I'm a bit of a fan of this one because uh, I think it's great that um, kids get to go in and have a bit of a play with this stuff. Um, it's actually a global movement of free volunteer-led community-based programming clubs uh, for young people. Um, so anyone uh, from the age of seven up uh, can have a go. Um, if you're older than seven, Unfortunately, you're a parent or guardian. Um, so if you want to find out more about that, uh, head to the Inspire 9 website um, and get down to, uh, I think they're still in Richmond, uh, to have a go uh, on Saturday. Um, another interesting thing that's coming up, um, Cass, do you, um, do you have a particular um, sort of project management style um, at, at your workplace? Are you a fan of Agile or not so much? Would you go along to the conference to find out about it? 
of what's the right answer here. I'm a fan of procrastination. So, oh, yeah. No, that's, you know, that's not a conference, though. No. Well, procrastination will be a, a, a hot topic uh, at Agile Australia, which is coming up uh, in June in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, yeah, I guess there are sort of intermediate and um, mid-level um, uh, opportunities. Um, if you're an experienced practitioner as well, um, there are some great speakers. Uh, Kate Darling from MIT Media Lab. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but Harkin Force, um, who's a, um, a doyen of um, Agile. Um, um, uh, Peter Halsey, um, who's the CTO at Prezi, um, which is a great, um, uh, fun piece of software to use. So that's going to be pretty cool. It's on, uh, I think from June 20, but we'll put some more info up on that, um, as well. Uh, it's been a fun show tonight. Um, thanks to, uh, our guests, uh, Owen and Nick, uh, for coming in. Um, I hope you had fun, guys. That's great. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Arius. Uh, we'll get you back um, at a later date. Um, thank you to uh, Justin Petch, uh, our podcaster. Um, thanks to uh, Cass for making us um, sound amazing tonight. Um, let us know when that cup arrives. Um, I, reckon, <laughs> I reckon if we can break open that data and share it. Um, I'll, pub- I'll make it publicly available. Let's open source this thing. Let's get it out there. We've been bought into it. Have a great night. This computer has a vast memory you have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.